A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. It killed me that we got scooped. It killed me because we had the story. Back in 2017, before anybody else reported a word of it, we had sources telling us the most shocking story of workplace exploitation in Canadian media that I had ever heard. They had worked at Vice. They were at the bottom of the ladder. And somebody near the top, an editor, reached out to them at specific times when their precarious jobs were looking especially precarious. And he said, I've got some work for you. But the work was not writing blog posts or reporting news stories or taking pictures of rappers. The job was to be a drug mule, smuggling suitcases lined with cocaine to Australia. Our sources said no. But the reason they were talking to us is because five others had said yes. And those five kids got caught and went to prison for years, while the guy who put them up to it was still walking free. It was a holy shit story. It was kind of the ultimate Canada Land story, and we had it. But the National Post had it too. And they published first. And if I'm being totally honest, they did a better job with it than we could have at the time. One of the two reporters on their story was Sean Craig, who was great and who used to work here, which kind of killed me too. And the other guy was Adrian Humphreys, a veteran crime reporter. He had stuff from Australia that we did not have. Adrian was a mensch about it, and he came on to Canada Land, and he gave me a great interview about the whole thing. I mean, what can I say? 
They scooped us. They got the story. But there was one thing that they didn't have. Slava Pastuk, the vice editor behind the crime. The guy who used his position and whatever influence the vice brand afforded him to entice these people into smuggling coke for him. He refused to speak to the Post. He refused to speak to anyone. This made the papers in Australia, in the UK, Billboard magazine wrote about it, The Hollywood Reporter. Not a word. Not to any of them. And there were questions for him. The big one being, why the hell did you do that? And also, how the hell did you do that? None of the young people he solicited had criminal records or cartel connections. These were aspiring models, a DJ, a wannabe music promoter. How do you get people like that to agree to smuggle nearly $20 million of high-purity cocaine across international borders? All of that has been unknown and untold. And the story kind of disappeared. Which, I think, is kind of what both Slava and Vice wanted. Vice gave one statement about it for the first National Post story, denying that they had done anything wrong and insisting that Vice did not have a workplace that promoted or excused drug use. As for Slava, well, years went by without a word from him. He changed his name and moved to Montreal. It didn't work. Eventually, he was arrested and charged and flown back to Toronto. All of this was covered in the press, all of it without comment from Slava. And then he reached out to us. We should chat, he said, in an email sent from his mom's house in the suburbs, where he was under house arrest awaiting sentencing. And that's where we met him. My first inclination was to move fast and not get scooped again. But the more we spoke to him, the more shocking stuff he told us. We couldn't just publish that stuff. We had to try to figure out if it was true. We had to try to get the other side of it all from a growing list of people. And as we reported it out, other people started to go on the record. Some for the first time ever. Week after week, month after month, a bigger and bigger story started to reveal itself to us. And before you knew it, we had put almost a year into this. A six-part series called Cool Mules, which we just launched today. And when I say we reported it out, what I really mean is Kasia Mihailovich did that. Kasia is the senior producer of Canada Land, and you've heard her take the reins of this show before and interview people like Dr. Jen Gunter. But now she is the host of her own show, her first. And she's going to sit down with me and talk about it in a minute, about her investigation, not just into this crime, but about an investigation that increasingly became a close look at Vice itself, going right back to the start. But one thing I need to tell you before she talks about all of that is that we are dummies. And this time by we, I mean me. We just put a huge amount of this company's resources into making cool mules, just as we did with Thunder Bay. And we did not have a sound business plan for either. We spent months and months on these investigations, mostly because we really wanted to, because we were obsessed with these stories, we wanted them to be told, and because going deep and doing long-form investigations, spending months on one story, to us it feels kind of like the apex format of audio journalism. And, you know, audiences are into it. 
It has never been harder to get people to read long-form stories, 5,000 words, 10,000 word stories, but people will listen to incredibly detailed reporting in audio form, if it is well told. And so we've been throwing ourselves into this format because we wanted to see if we could. And so we made Thunder Bay. And a million and a half downloads later, we proved to ourselves that, yes, we can do this kind of stuff and people will be there for it all over the world. But we are still in the hole on that show. Listeners funded it, but it cost a lot more than we thought that it would. It got option for TV. We still haven't seen any money from that. Not yet. Fingers crossed. This time around, we got a sponsor for Cool Mules. Doesn't quite cover our costs. So, yeah, doing shows like this is a speculative gamble for this company. And we are mostly taking these chances, not because we think that we're going to hit big and it will all pay off, but, you know, because we're dummies. We, we just really want to tell these stories. But as we get further into making shows like this, like, we need to figure out the money part of it. We want to keep making shows like this. And the only way that we're going to be able to find a path to sustaining these efforts is if when they come out, they make as big of a splash as possible. So, before Kasha and I give you an inside look at Cool Mules, I'm asking you, go subscribe to Cool Mules. And then... Once you do listen, please give it a review. That's what pumps us up on the charts, and that's how other people find out that it exists. So much of the success of a new podcast depends on the momentum it picks up right when it's released. So you actually can make a big impact. You can help us in a big way. And yeah, I am asking you, I'm asking for your help with this. Please go subscribe to Cool Mules. Okay, enough of that. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Anthony Hilliard, Katie Hawking, Sarah Gates, Duncan McNeil, Lindsay Erlinson, Ryan Ingram, Nancy Gefkin, and Greg Murray. Hi, my name is Greg Murray from Halifax, Nova Scotia. I'm a fan and supporter of Canada Land. I love the way Canada Land, Oppo, Commons, Wag the Doug, and the other podcasts and articles challenge my assumptions and provide me with viewpoints and perspectives I would not find elsewhere feel that thanks to Canada Land, I'm better informed and better prepared to be a good citizen. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So I know why I was drawn to this story, Kasia, and listeners of CanadaLand are well aware that I'm, I'm pretty interested in, in Vice. Why was this something that you jumped at? Well, at first I was more interested in Slava. You said that he had reached out to you and you were planning to go interview him. Remember, I said like, oh, can I come? Yeah. Because I wanted to see this guy and see what he was about and what he was going to tell you because I had known the story from the National Post coverage. And it was such a widely circulated story among especially Canadian media, even though I was living in New York at the time. I heard about it and it was it was wild. The interest was let's meet a person who did this thing, who said he did this thing, who was exposed in a national newspaper a couple of years ago. And nobody has really seen or heard from him since. Like, what is he up to? So for me, that was the kind of human interest of it. And then, of course, as we got more into it and as the National Post kind of hints to in its original coverage, this had something to do with Vice Media as well and about the culture that Vice Media had created in mm -hmm. their workplace at the time and the culture that it was famous for. I guess there's just like a natural curiosity when, you know, a criminal is exposed, as yeah. Slava was, by the Post. But joining me and writing Shotgun on that interview that one day led to you dedicating like a good part of your time to this story. And I, I wonder if we can't talk a little bit about like beyond just reading the Post coverage and just being a person in media who is just aware of Vice. Like, could you talk a little bit a little bit about what Vice meant to you and why you were willing to put all of your attention and, and uh, all of your reporting into the story of this crime, but also kind of just became, the more we looked at it, it is the story of Vice. Right. I come from a background of media criticism. I started in radio at On the Media, and I think that had something to do with it. You know, Vice has been this crazy success story in digital media, in youth-focused media, during a time when newsrooms have been contracting. And of course, I know a lot of people who have worked at Vice, who have freelanced at Vice, who've been staff at Vice. My ex wrote for Vice. I interviewed for a job at Vice mm -hmm. uh, for their TV show, Vice News Tonight, in 2017 when I lived in New York. Like so many other people, they had asked me to interview for that position to do a screen test. So this has always loomed large in my professional life. And then growing up, Vice was so fucking cool. Like as a teenager, I would get Vice and I was I was actually texting with my friend about this, fact checking myself, being like, do you remember when we did this? Going along Queen Street, stopping in at a record shop, finding the latest issue of Vice and then reading it together and like going through the do's and don'ts. And as a teenage girl being like excited, confused, distraught at all the messages coming at me from that, but also as a budding journalist reading coverage that's about stuff that's so taboo, about sex and drugs, about war, about mm -hmm. Iraq, Afghanistan, about the post 9-11 world that I was growing up in, 
I found that all to be so relevant to me and I loved it. And I thought it was I thought it was excellent, exciting journalism. I mean, that sounds like it had a like a pretty profound impact, considering that you became a journalist that, you know, <laughs> you're telling me that you read this thing and you loved it and you become a journalist at a time when like every other news organization is like crumbling. But there's this one place that is just growing. Some people will kind of like raise an eyebrow at the fact that you uh, applied for a job there, but it's pretty hard to like throw a rock in a room full of Canadian journalists and find somebody who hasn't had some kind of connection, freelance work, job interview. Like it was the only place that was getting bigger. And so people wanted to work there, but also it was like one of the only places where it was possible. Yeah. So when you did enter journalism, what did you think of Vice when you were working in New York media? Well, when I became a journalist, I learned that it was a lot more complicated a field than the image I had of it growing up. It's a dying industry, I would say. There's nothing but contractions going on. You know, Vice was the the great exception, although now that's that's changing. So by the time I was thinking more critically of media, I had a lot of problems with Vice and the way they covered stuff as I became more of a absolutely avowed feminist. I had a lot more problems with Vice. It seemed super broy, And also we know that the kind of first person journalism that they found to be so hugely profitable has a lot of problems. Like looking back on, say, Shane Smith going to North Korea, watching that documentary, I'm more cringing. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, back in 2008, even when I was like entering my 20s, I think I still would have thought that was like really great journalism. But to be honest, now I watch it and I think like, what is this fucking bro doing in North Korea? And he's just basically pointing at things and saying like, oh, that's so fucking weird. I think that that doesn't work for me anymore. I kind of graduated from a lot of that kind of coverage into diversifying my media diet. But you know what? I do still find myself reading really urgent and good journalism on the Vice website. And that's because Vice is a huge international empire, right? It's a huge global media empire. It has a lot of great journalists. I wanted to be one of them at one point. But there's also stuff that I think a lot of people at Vice are not so proud of publishing. And that stuff deserves its fair scrutiny as well. And I think it also points to a culture that has been widely reported to have elements of exploitation and abuse in it. And that's what kind of brings us back to this story. Because here we are talking about Vice in 2015, which is a very important time for Vice. It was getting a lot of, in Canada, it was getting a lot of money from Rogers. It was about to like explode with this new studio and this new space in Liberty Village. And We've got the person that we interviewed for this the most for this podcast, Slava Pastikov, the noisy music editor in Canada, which is the top music job here in Canada for Vice Canada. This was an influential position both within the company and in the wider music and arts culture of Canada, of Toronto, at a time when like Drake was coming up, when Toronto was kind of becoming like a cool place for music. But at the same time, He said that he started off on a six-month contract that just kind of got extended indefinitely. And so there was this kind of precarity to his position that I think a lot of journalists in media right now can relate to. You know, you, you have a lot of power over your subjects, over the field that you have. People read you. You might have like a lot of followers, a big 
public persona because all the work we do is public facing. But at the same time, on the inside, you actually don't know if your job is going to exist in a couple of months. You don't know where you stand with the company. And given the layoffs that have been rolling through Vice, it's not crazy to think that Slava was someone who was really worried about keeping his job. And he he grew up with the same Vice that I grew up with. We're not that far apart in age. And he likes that old Vice that kind of shooting from the hip bro culture where it's like, oh, fucking cool, man, we're going to go around the world and do a bunch of drugs and all the stuff that the co-founders themselves have pushed as this mythology of what vice is. They love talking about this. You know, Shane Smith has talked for well into this decade about how vice started with a lie. And I always used to say, like, if you're looking at vice for being news and the truth then you're in trouble. Originally, it was the voice of Montreal. Shane Smith, Sarusha Alvey, and Gavin McInnes say that they took it over from the people who were running it and turned it into Vice and were, were able to move to New York and make this global media empire. So that is the Vice that I think Slava Pastikoff, in his mind, kind of idealized, and that's the Vice he wanted to work for, he thought he worked for. When we first had the opportunity to get Slava on the record and hear from, you know, the criminal himself. And I thought, you know, we could run this as a Canada land or, you know, why don't we think of this as like a fun, like three episode standalone series and we'll go and try to build this out and get the other side of this and, and, and check everything and get some other voices. But I did not see this as a very serious story. And I certainly didn't see it as a story we're going to spend this long on. Do you remember what you said after the first interview? You were like, we could just publish that. That's fucking great. Yeah. Good. We're done. Like kind of thing. <laughs> uh, Not so fast. With, with, with you know, uh, diligence and fact checking, of course. Of course. Uh, but um, I mean, we do interviews all the time. We do an interview. We publish it. We do that every week. Yeah. But you kind of took that ball and ran with it and working with you on it. My attitude towards the material changed. And I don't know, it did become more serious to me the more I learned about yeah. everything involved. Did you see that from the start or was there a similar evolution with you? Well, hmm, it did get a lot less funny, for sure. Because as Slava tells us, like when we were on the courthouse steps right before he went to prison, I asked him what he thought about the piece by Kate Nibbs that ran in The Ringer. It was like a feature interview with him, a magazine feature. And she wrote a great story. And we met through going to court dates. And it's really well done and thoroughly fact-checked. And Slava loved it because he thinks that it made him come off as just like a dumb bro who made a stupid mistake. I think this paints me as like a bumbling suburban bro who got too caught up in the vice lifestyle and did some stupid shit. And that's accurate? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that is one way you could read it because the way he talks about it is that. So if you're quoting him accurately and you're portraying how he thinks about it accurately, which he did, you think he wants you to think, I'm just a dumb bro who made this mistake. And who got caught up in the vice culture. Yeah. And though he says, I don't blame vice for this, he makes a lot of connections that we won't get too into now because I think people yeah. should hear the show to explore it fully. But I think he does situate his crime very deeply within the world of vice. To him, yes, these things are completely intertwined. And our original interest in, in it was like, 
that seems very dumb. And it's also a media story. And we do media criticism. Let's go interview him about that. And in person, he can be very funny. He can be very charming and witty. And I think where it stopped getting funny is when we started to ask other people about it. When we interviewed Jake Kavanch, who was an intern at Vice, when he was propositioned by Slavit to go on a trip to Australia with a bunch of things in luggage. He never specified drugs, he said, but Jake is not an idiot, and he got the message that this was a drug smuggling venture. We spoke to Tanera Yelland, who was also working at Vice when she was propositioned by Slavit to go on this drug run. And Tanera tells us that the day she was fired from Vice, Slava texted her to ask her again to do this. And both of them told us that they felt incredibly exploited by this. Specifically, Jake said, I thought I was going to get journalism work. At this point, I'm like, holy fuck. Like, as soon as he started telling me this, I like just had the worst feeling inside of me because I, I, I genuinely thought like he had an opportunity for me, like journalism. And here he's like basically saying, yo, do you want to traffic drugs? And then, of course, there are five people who went on this trip, who did say yes to going on this trip, who went to prison in Australia for it. As you point to, like, from Slava's perspective, Jake was an intern whose internship was ending. Mm -hmm. And Tanera was an employee who he, he first propositioned. And then when he found out that she'd been fired and he says again, hey, do you want to go on one of these trips? In both cases, they originally thought, this is an editor who might be offering me journalism work. And then they find out that he's actually soliciting their involvement in an international drug running scheme. And I think that that's when the story becomes about the gig economy. It becomes about precarious workers, vulnerable workers, and exploitation. And I think that carries through to the kids who actually did take the trip when you look at who they are. Yeah, so once we interviewed Jake... I mean, the way this story worked is after we interviewed Slava the first time, we interviewed Jake very close together, right? It almost happened like maybe the same week. And then I really wanted to talk to the five people who had been imprisoned in Australia for mm -hmm. doing this, for going on the trips that Slava had arranged for them. All five people pled guilty to attempt to import a commercial quantity of cocaine. It was almost 40 kilos, $20 million worth on the streets of Australia, where cocaine is super expensive. Mm -hmm. And as the press release from the Australian police made clear, it was a crime that had the potential for life in prison. Yeah. So they pled guilty and they went to prison in Australia, halfway around the world. And I wanted to know as much as I could about them now. I was told that you can't interview someone in Australian prison. I was rebuffed by the New South Wales Corrective Services. Some of the people had served their terms and were home. And I reached out to them multiple times and to their families and didn't hear back from them. I heard from friends of some of the people who were in prison that they were afraid to speak because they were afraid of whatever cartel might be involved in the drug running. They were afraid of messing up the release of the people still in prison. So what I had to go on were the Australian court documents that we fought to get from Australian Corrective Services. One thing that was interesting to me was we could look at Slava and roll our eyes, but to a lot of people, he might have been somebody that you look up to. If you're aspiring to actually make a living in a cultural industry, like what is an establishment or an institution that could make that possible or has achieved that and mm -hmm. who holds, who has clout and weight? 
and its vice, you know, uh, like the position that he held to them and who he was to them was very different than who he was to us. And vice is a place where the founders joke about being drug dealers before they started vice. Yeah. It's different when you see who has been taken advantage of them in this situation and who has taken all the risk in these trips and who paid the consequences for it. It's these five young people. It's not, you know, people higher up who are making millions of dollars off of drug running. It's not, you know, for a long time, it seemed like it wasn't even going to be Slava himself who introduced this idea to five people. Yeah, he and his co-accused were the last to be charged. And then anyone above them, wherever the drugs came from, those people have not been held accountable. Not yet. No. I guess one of the major curiosities I had was what is the pull of this kind of influence economy? This gatekeeper status that Vice has asserted. I was curious to explore like that aspect of this story. And I think that what we kind of ended up looking at was not just, I mean, the problem I think for your reporting is that these kids were not available for interview. And so you went through the, the records that you were able to get and talking to one of their lawyers. And maybe one day we'll be able to actually talk to one of them and say, why did you do it? But I think that asking that question led us to look at a lot of strange behavior that people, a lot of things people will agree to do when they're paid in coolness or when there's the promise of some sort of institutional stamp of approval from, from this, this powerful vice brand. So you're talking about kind of the cloud economy and the influence economy that surrounds vice and the creative industries that all five of these people were in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that does have something to do with it. And we know that because Robert Wang, who is one of the people who went on the trip and had just finished up his internship advice when he went on that trip, we know that he told the RCMP that part of the reason he went on this trip was because he thought that Slava could help his music career. Mm-hmm. And he was hoping to get one of the artists he managed, some kind of exposure by by Slava. And that is part of the reason he kind of got caught up in this. And we see that this could be possible for everyone involved. Like Nate Cardi was a model from New York, and he had come up to Toronto. He had met with Slava before, and he knew the kind of influence that Slava had in reporting in the music industry in Canada, at least. And we do know that like Slava offered Nate a visit to the vice office in Australia when he got there, but Nate was already signed up for it. I think it's more that he just knew that Slava was an influential person in culture reporting in Canada. With Portia Wade, she was an aspiring model. And with Jordan Gardner, who was Slava's roommate at the time, he was an up-and-coming DJ in Toronto. He'd already been written about by Vice once, so we know that he knew Slava's influence in the music world in Toronto. Yeah. And as for Katiba Sanusi, he was involved in music and events planning too, so they were all kind of involved in this world that Slava had a lot of influence over. So that might be part of why they said yes, but... Also, I think it's important to note that all the men who were involved in this, at least, said they had been threatened. After they agreed. Yeah, they said they agreed. When they, when and they then, tried to back out. And when they tried to back out, they were threatened in one way or another until yeah. they had to go through with it, that there was no going back. I'm not trying to simplify things. And I think attention with you and I, as we've worked together on this, you as the reporter and me producing it with you and, and, and co-writing it with you, was that I... I get excited about the big ideas that are suggested by the story. And you as a reporter, as a reporter, should are like, I want to make sure that we're getting each and every fact exactly right. Yeah. To build a larger point about 
how working in this kind of hellish gig economy where, you know, none of us have any chance of ever owning a home because it costs like a million dollars. Whereas when my parents were buying a house, it was like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in a handshake. We're living in a world where we all think that we might have just one chance to make it if we have like the perfect social media presence. That's a kind of fucked up world. And I definitely want to build the case or I, I do build the case, I think, in this podcast. And it's my personal opinion that that's a world that leads to exploitation. And that's been well reported on by many different journalists. Mm -hmm. That connection that you just made is one that I think is an uneasy one to people who think that this is a wrongheaded project. I mean, we know that this podcast and the idea that there is some connection beyond just the fact, okay, sure, Slava worked advice and was involved in crime. There's probably criminals at any media organization. Why are you making this whole thing about vice is something that we've heard. And explicitly, Justin Ling, who used to work at Vice and worked there with Slava, and since, of course, has been a co-host at Oppo for a time here at Canada Land, he told us that this was a stupid podcast. And he went on the record with us and is in Cool Mules. I think this podcast is unbelievably stupid. Apologies to the, the people sitting in front of me, but I think this podcast is a bad idea. Because Vice was unable to speak for themselves, and they I, I don't know why, but they chose not to give us comment, he felt like he had to somehow represent them. His argument to us was that it is journalistically wrongheaded mm -hmm. to platform and make central to this story Slava as the perpetrator. Right. That was one of his objections, yes. Yeah. And and I mean, he, he made that objection having not heard the show or not knowing what we were actually doing. But he did bring up something that I know we were already talking about. Like, to what extent Slava came to us. He wants to present his story. He is a criminal. He has every reason to mislead us. And are we risking glorifying this guy or giving him a pass by letting him be a central character, if not the central character of this version of the story. You know, he was absent right. from previous reporting. Uh, and here he is. I think he's the first voice you hear other than yours. Yes. In this podcast. I want to get your thoughts on Justin's objection and, and how we dealt with that. Right. And the trick is that Slava is also himself a journalist and a storyteller, somebody who has been weaving a narrative about his life for a very long time. And I think that the challenge of making this podcast was that we knew that he had an objective. He wanted to look good in the eyes of the listener. He wanted to minimize his own culpability. And, you know, something that he kept saying again and again was that, that this was a victimless crime, mm -hmm. that there are, no, there are no heroes in this story, but there's no villains either. There are no villains in this story. There's no winners, but there's no villains. He felt unfairly characterized as a villain in the National Post reporting. And he really felt like they were going after him for some unknown personal reason, which, for the record, I don't believe is true. Mm -hmm. So when someone is coming to us with this kind of angle, it is our job to report it as much as possible and to give the listener a fair and balanced assessment of what they said. Now, that's not to say that I think that everything you'll hear Slava saying is true. But I think that we give it the context that it deserves, that this is somebody who is trying to sell us a narrative. These are the other people we've talked to. We've tried to use court documents and interviews to piece together what we think really happened or to piece together enough of what really happened for the listener to be able to make a reasonable judgment on their own. Now, 
that is something that's kind of unique to audio journalism, I think, when you're listening to people tell their own stories. We can give them a little bit of latitude to say what they want, and then we fact check it, and we come in. I come in as the host, and I try to contextualize that for the listener. The charge that we have given him a platform, I have a problem with it because when we talk about platforming people, we're usually talking about people who have like virulent ideologies, you know, Nazis, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, like they're going to spread. They're going to use our platform to spread some some vicious message or something. Yeah, and we do see that. We see that in cable news all the time. We see people get on and they talk about whatever their fucked up notion is, and it's not fact checked in real time. And people are, when we give somebody a platform via our journalism, people are going to listen to them more and might even think of them as more credible because they have been interviewed by a journalist. I definitely get that, but with a narrative series like Cool Mules is a highly edited six episode series. And I think when you listen to it, especially in totality, you're not getting just the unfiltered view of Slava Pastikov. Far from it. So I guess the next question is, well, do we interview, you know, quote unquote, bad people at all? And the answer is, of course, journalists would love to interview the bad guy. We have a prurient and human interest in this, just like anybody else. Yeah. And we want to hear from the villain. I want to be like, why did you do the things you do? But part of the journalistic process is fact checking it and contextualizing it in a way. So, you know, in that way, OK, we gave Slava a platform. He made of it what he could. And then I made what I could of my skills to give it the context it deserves. What took this to the next level for me is that there's a meta aspect of this. This pretty micro story of this bungling, bumbling crime caper is also the story of Vice over the last 25 years. And it's also kind of an allegory for for like everything that's happened. Like, yes, hipster culture, which they claim to have invented. Yes, social media, the voice of which Vice anticipated, the expository aspect. I mean, all those early like shot by Kern people, like regular people turning themselves into pornography in the pages of Vice or for Vice videos. That was like influencer culture, selfie culture, porn culture before it was on the internet. It was all there in the late 90s. You just flipped through a copy of Vice. And, and then shock culture, hate culture, trolling culture, an opposition to political correctness that somehow morphed into outright Nazism and like post-truth culture. You know, the founders of Vice cracked that code way back. Like they said, yes, we admit it. Nice to meet you. We're scammers. We're exploiters. We are debauched. We are shamelessly trying to win for no greater cause than us winning. And we will constantly lie. But it's okay because we never pretended to be honest to begin with. All that we promise is that it'll be fun to watch us and it will drive our rivals insane. Like, does that sound familiar to you? Like that is the Trump doctrine. And it was the vice strategy from day one. I have a lot to say about this. I mean, I'm, I'm only smiling because I think that's that has been the doctrine of powerful men since time began. Yeah. I, you, and Slava wanted to be a powerful man. It did not begin with vice. I think it's just the modern iteration of all these things. And uh, in an early version of this series, I'm laying on all these big ideas in episode one. And you and our colleagues rightly just smashed me back and said, you know what? This story has to earn it. We have to tell the story of this crime caper. And if those ideas are warranted in the facts, if this actually is about that, it'll come out. I think it did. I think that this is, it's just a crazy story. And it's, I think, kind of a more complicated and interesting story than I initially gave it credit for. And I think that's that's the show that you reported and hosted. 
And uh, I think that's the show that, that we have for people to listen to. Thank you. And I hope it is because, you know, as complicated as my relationship is to journalism, I am still a bleeding heart journalist in one way. And that is that I think that the only defense against a post-truth world that you were talking about is, in fact, the truth, however small or mundane or complicated as it may be. Hey, that's Canada Land. If you have not subscribed to Cool Mules yet, please go do that. And if you want to support this show, it has really never been easier. You just look in the show notes, the episode notes, and there's a link and you press it and then bloop, $5 a month Canadian. There will be a special premium Canada Land feed installed for you on your podcasting app. If you're on a desktop, just go to canadalandshow.com slash join. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Thanks for supporting us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.